Welcome. It's the Director's Club Podcast. Pretty cool, huh? Um, What's even cooler is that this is a bonus episode. And not a whole lot to do with movies. Uh Uh-oh. I know it's controversial, but um, for 2015, just thought I'd give you a heads up since I know we haven't covered this yet. But we're sort of doing little cool bonus episodes. We have done them in the past, but... We're kind of making them a little bit more specific in covering a wide variety of things, um, uh, mostly pertaining to pop culture, of course. And, uh, I mean, Patrick recently just uh, discussed literary adaptations, and he did a fantastic job. Since then, I sort of brought up the idea to him that we could do an Actors Club episode, or a Writers Club episode, or even a Composers Club episode. What the hell? You know, just sort of... throwing it out there. It may or may not happen. We might replace a couple of directors with uh, this idea, this concept of um, other sort of club-like episodes. Might as well just change the whole thing into Pop Culture Club instead of Director's Club. But no, 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 no. We're still sticking to our format. We're still going to talk directors. We're still going to talk film. But for this particular bonus episode, we are going to talk music. Yes. Um, Something that I should bring up, since you've heard them both at the uh, beginning there, uh, are two songwriters that I was named after, James Taylor and Eric Clapton. Um, Not the biggest Eric Clapton fan, but I am still, to this day, a huge James Taylor fan. And I will say that, you know, anytime I hear a number of James Taylor songs... Uh, I immediately feel a warmth inside, a nostalgia, and a lot of that has to do just because it's my namesake, but my parents, you know, went out of their way to name me after two musicians without knowing that I would become an avid musician um, and just a music fanatic, really. Like, I would say going all the way back to the days of Michael Jackson and vinyl and the Beatles, and I mean, (laughs) I was just listening to everything that my dad owned um, on vinyl uh, back when we had record players and tape recorders and even reel-to-reel and 8-track. So, uh, you know, it was just uh, everything that you can imagine my dad had, uh, you know, a Miles Davis record, a Frank Zappa record, and, uh, you know, Joe Walsh. So, I mean, like, just everything all across the board had a very diverse music taste that would eventually lead me down the path of, um, you know, trying to consume as much music as possible from going to the library and checking out 20 CDs at a time (laughs) just to learn more about different kinds of music and see what influenced what and, uh, you know, just check out Rolling Stone magazine or watch 120 Minutes on MTV. I mean, just a number of ways to connect 
um, artistically with music. And I picked up my guitar when I was 13 and, you know, played Nirvana songs. And uh, the rest is history. I mean, really, like, I started a band. And then from that day forward, started writing my own songs as a solo artist. And, you know, movies are a solid 99% out of 100 my uh, favorite therapy, my favorite thing to do, but slightly a notch above that at the 100% mark of my favorite thing on the planet is still music because it uh, has gotten me out of some incredibly crazy dark times. Um, And, you know, whether if it's listening to a record or if it's actually writing a song or putting out a record or just playing a show or going to a show or hearing a song in a movie. And, I mean, there's just so many ways to be moved by music, to um, escape using music, to fall asleep to music, to um, make out to music. I mean, there's just, like, so many ways music can play a part uh, in our lives and serve as the soundtrack to your life. (laughs) Um, Shout out to Corey Pierce there, who you will be hearing from momentarily. My plan for this particular episode is to, yes, talk about the song that changed my life. Um, Actually, I'm going to cheat because I am the host and I am also a dick. No, um, I want to talk about two songs because uh, they both have special significance. There's stories behind them. Um, But since I'm rambling on and on with yet another introduction here, I do want to pass it on to somebody else who's contributing to this episode. Um, I'm very excited to let you hear, uh, I'd say close to about 10 um, previous guests and friends and um, just people who I really admire in terms of you know, being able to tell a good story regarding the song that changed their life in some regard. And it's, you know, going to be a really great listen. You'll get to hear 30 seconds um, each of the song that they chose to talk about. Um, And I will be contributing links on the uh, web page blog over at directorsclubpodcast.com. So you can hear the songs that they chose in their entirety if you're not yet familiar with them. Um, But... Before we get to my choices, I'm sorry, plural, yes, I'm choosing two songs, like I said, just to be, uh, you know, um, just a cheat. That's the word I'm looking for. (laughs) Um, So yeah, it's going to be cool. I I think you're really going to enjoy this. We're going to start off with, of course, my co-host and cohort and close friend, Patrick Rapole, who, of course, gets to contribute. And how many times do I say, of course? I really wonder. I have to start... Um, editing those out, of course. It's always like you you start to become hyper-aware when you um, start recording your voice and putting it out into the airwaves, and you're like, how many times did I say this? How many times did I go, um, and never mind, I don't want to go on and on and on like I usually do, but I can't help myself. I'm just so excited about this bonus episode, mostly for the uh, guests that you're about to hear, including, like I said, first up, um, and I'll show up halfway through and then at the very end with my second choice, So um, I'm really excited for you to hear the first guest, as mentioned, (laughs) the great, the one, the only, the infamous Patrick Rapole of the Directors Club podcast. You may have heard of it.
made you want to do this episode? What made you want to do this episode? Um, what made me want to do this episode in particular? So you had a dream that our podcast guests were lining up. Yeah, and they were just all talking about the songs that really moved them. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, we're very familiar at this point with the the film that changed your life. And we even did an episode on some movies that changed our lives. um, I was also not looking forward to just compiling a bunch of songs and score samples from 2014 and be like, hey, everybody, here's my favorite things from 2014. I wanted to make something a little bit more interactive and fun. And, Personal. Yeah, basically. Sounds good. Yeah. If you, if you remember that episode, that bonus episode we did about uh, movies that change your life, I don't, all the movies that changed my life were just like, after I saw that movie, then I liked this kind of movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> then I liked movies even more. Uh, so I had a lot of trouble with this question. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's hard to just whittle it down. Yeah, I mean, you and, want the actual, you want to pick one song that's like, that had the biggest effect on, like, that changed the course of my life briefly or whatever, then it would be Daniel Johnston's True Love Will Find You in the End, because that was like, oh, if this guy can record music, I can record music, and then that's what got me... You know, recording music, and I met you, and I met all kinds of people, and that was just that's a really, true. That was an interesting period of time. But like, I don't like that song. I can't listen to Daniel Johnson. Now. I think it's terrible. I was in like a very mm-hmm. emotionally vulnerable place when I liked Daniel Johnson, and I can't, I can't really do it anymore. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to choose that um, for that reason, you know. If I wanted to be self congratulatory, I'm going to be like Patrick. I bet you chose a fight song by Marilyn Manson. Oh yeah, <laughs> my life. Because then you commented when I recorded fight song cutter. Yeah. Well. I'm glad that you did that. Yeah. Um, it was That's true. You, you want details about how we met each other. I, on my MySpace, I had a really, really dreadful acoustic cover of Fight Song, Fight Song by Marilyn Manson that Jim complimented for whatever reason. I thought it was good. Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, then we became friends through that. Yeah, and I was like... Hey Patrick, I'm hosting a house show in Chicago. Come over, mm-hmm. and then that you didn't. And then used you. What font is that <laughs> to, get, to get that across? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Definitely a fancy one. Yeah, some kind of script font, maybe. But it was. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't remember who all played there, but you sat in the kitchen at one point, and while you know you were drooling over my homemade pierogies, you started talking movies, and I was like, whoa. Yeah, check out the big brain on Patrick. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I kind of just picked an arbitrary song. There's one other song that I didn't choose that I could have chosen, which was "A uh, Little Child Running Wild" by Curtis Mayfield. Oh, because that was that's on the Superfly soundtrack. And then for some reason, that after hearing that song, that's when I understood what white privilege was. Because <laughs> there's that really really powerful chorus where he's like, "I didn't have to be here," um, and it's like, "Oh, like suddenly that made everything click in my mind." Mm-hmm. So. Um, that changed my life. You know, it changed the way I view the world or whatever a little bit. A lot of Curtis Mayfield did that. But if I'm going to choose one song that sort of defined, like, what I look for in music and what I like in music, it would have to be one album. And that would be uh, Transmissions from the Satellite Heart by the Flaming Lips. Woo! Um, and the first song in that is Turn It On, which is a very poppy, very cute, sort of noisy, but mostly just kind of a safe college rock mm-hmm. sort of a song. It's got a nice catchy hook. But the song after that is called Pilot Can at the Queer of God. And that is, I'm going to say, the song that changed my life. Because that is this insane mess 
of noise. There's all kinds of screeching, and there's this really because if you remember before they started making music that sounded like they did it for car commercials, like the drumming was insane in Flaming Lips. Out like everything pre Soft Bullet. Like that's I don't like Soft Bullet because that's no, no, you're, you're nuts. Yeah, and Soft Bulletin has great drums. Yeah, well, no, but it, it, but the most of the songs are too soft to really take advantage of it. Mm. But they got these big John Bonham kind of drums, like, doo, 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 oh yeah, duh, duh, and then the, so then Pilot Can at the Queer God has these really crazy heavy drums, and it's got this really heavy guitar, and there's this just squealing, like feedback noises and stuff all around it. But it's also got like it's got a strong pop melody, it's got a strong hook, it's got. Lyrics that are vaguely, like, about kids coming back from middle school and, like, suddenly noticing all the girls have changed. And, like, it's just, it's this thing that's, it's accessible, but it's also really harsh and weird. And, uh, I mean, and that's kind of mostly what I like in music. I don't like things to sound too well produced. I don't like things to get too out there where I can't relate to them in any way. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I like things that are, you know, I like things that sound like Pilot Can at the Queer of God. I would have to say that is the song that changed my life in that once I started listening to that, I'm like, oh, that's, I want music to sound like that. Great. Fade into song. watching we are the best finally so i'm glad to hear that have you seen it i loved it it's so good it's my number three. Oh my god this fucking movie anyway i know hi. i know <laughs> i've never seen a movie that like accurately depicted what my adolescence was like and yeah me wanting to <laughs> connect with people through music and making friends that way it was like oh my god this is too uh, it hits very close to home in a joyful way yeah yeah absolutely i, I felt that way too Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm certainly excited to hear about what song changed your life. Because, um, you know, I, I, I'm I'm thinking that we do have similar tastes, and uh, I'm, I'm imagining that music has made a tremendous impact on your life in some uh, ways or another. I mean, most people's yeah. life has. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I'm definitely not like... Um, I mean, I'm not a musician myself. But you sing very well, and you come up with oh, great parody songs. Well, thank you. Thank you. But, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I most of my um, experience, like, being part of creating music is, like, being in, like, church choirs and stuff like oh, that. Wow. Musicals. Um, but I don't have a lot of, like, technical knowledge. Like, I took, um, I took music lessons for a while, like, piano, but, um, so I feel like... Uh, can you still hear me? Oh yeah, definitely. Okay, I put headphones in. Um, yeah, because uh, what was I saying? Um, I feel like uh, yeah, yeah. I don't have a lot of uh, like technical knowledge, so I don't feel like I necessarily have the vocabulary to talk about uh, how songs are structured and things like that. Um, especially like like from a music perspective. I mean, a little bit from lyrics, just because like 
um, you know, having been like an English major and writing terrible poetry and editing mm-hmm. people's stuff uh, that, you know, that can translate to like understanding lyrics. But I mean, in terms of music, I'm just like, it sounded nice and it made me happy. But um, yeah, so the song I wanted to talk about um, is uh, Dig Me Out by Slater Kinney. Ooh, good which, choice. <laughs> thank you. Which is uh, the first track on the album of the same name. Mm-hmm. Uh, came out in 1997, and um, I was trying to remember the year that I first heard that song. I think it was either 99 or 2000. I think I was about 15, and I was into like alternative. You know, I, I like I was I was 15. It was like the turn of the century, um, so I was listening to like like alternative music like I was into hole and stuff like that and I definitely already like considered myself a, a feminist at that age so I was you know yeah like hole and garbage and like that kind of stuff um which was cool you know it was definitely like like of its time and then uh I saw this thing on MTV uh I think it was like talking about the riot girl scene Ooh, nice. <laughs> yeah I Before mean I even I- knew what that was yeah. yeah, yeah, but I mean, this was of course like 1999, so right. I, by that time it had pretty much been like you know. Well, I mean, it was on on MTV, so of course, like by that time it had completely been co-opted. But um, I, I mean, like I wasn't really familiar with it, or it was either that or like the indie scene. But anyway, um, and so they mentioned this band Slater Kinney, and this was like before you could just jump on YouTube. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's how I discovered music was through. 120 minutes alternative nation right yeah right right yeah and um and i mean i was definitely of like a tender young age where i did not stay up to watch 120 minutes um so so this was just like uh yeah this was just like this like like random little short that they played like in between whatever stupid thing i was watching so i i just sort of like heard like 30 seconds of this band and i was like oh that's interesting so the next time i was at uh media play i i was just like oh i have to buy a slater kitty album so i bought dig me out um and i i remember i like like i have such a vivid memory of like being in the back of my mom's car and putting it in my disc man for like the first time and like i remember like the stretch of road in my hometown where i was the first time i heard the song and just like putting it on my disc man and it was just like it was unlike anything I'd ever heard. Where I was, I was like, you know, getting to the point in listening to music where I was used to like kind of heavier, screamier sounds, but not really that like bright, energetic punk kind of kind of vibe. Like mm-hmm. everything, everything in the you know at this point was all like sort of this like post grunge, sludgy kind of feel, and and this was just like so intense and driving and the vocals are so just like sharp and piercing i was just like like i could barely stand it like it was it was overwhelming and it took me it took me a really long time to like really be able to um like acclimate to the point where i could listen to the album it's kind of like um you know it's not dissimilar from like from drinking beer where it's like the first time you have it you're just like you know oh my god what yeah yeah, yeah. like this is gross and it takes you a while to be like you know oh this is kind of hoppy this is kind of malty right. um you, you know that's kind of what it felt like from a musical perspective but 
Um, but you, even when it felt like too intense and overwhelming, it was just like, th- th- there was just like this emotional connection, like immediately where it's like, I don't know exactly what these women are talking about, but it's like, it's resonating with me on, on this level. Um, and, and yeah. Um, and, and so I listened to dig me out, uh, for like, it was like in my rotation, uh, for the next few years, uh, until I got to college and I met, uh, my friend Shomi, who's just like cool, the coolest, like punk feminist, right girl chick ever. And she's like also super into Slater Kenny. And she introduced me to like the rest of their library. Cause I, I don't know. It just never really connected with me that like they had other albums. Um, so I, I just, you know, listen to all the rest of their stuff and uh we we got to see them in concert twice uh before they broke up in 2005 um which was like really uh like really special for me but um yeah just that that, so that was sort of like my gateway into uh my favorite band and um i yeah i just feel like uh like, like their their sound and you know you know what they talk about just like every like everything they do just like resonates with me on such a deep level i mean obviously um a lot of their songs are about um you you know being musicians and and trying to resist labels and trying to resist um like sort of consumerist culture while putting themselves out there and i can't really relate to that on a like like because i like i said before like i'm not a musician but it, it it just feels like really applicable to a lot of areas elsewhere in my life where I, I something that I really like about the music is that it is very political, but it's not like overly specific. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It so it's the political with the personal. Yeah, absolutely. Which is like gold star for you feminists. Um, and yeah, and, and their sound is just so incredible. Like, like it took me it took me a while to get into other Riot Girl acts like Bikini Kill because um, they're the, the the that sort of like technical mastery isn't quite there. I mean, I mean, no shade to uh, to Kathleen Hanna, but I, I just find Bikini Kill a lot like sloppier. Sure. And there's something to be said for that, but it's just it's just not really where my personal tastes lie. Um, and, and with Slater Kinney, I just, I just feel like, like they, they take, they, they have that, like that, that energy and that emotion and that drive and that willingness to like, just scream and like, just put it all out there. But it's just the the way that it's done is just so skillful and, and they really, really know what they're doing. So it's that like great balance. Um, and very, very precise in in the way they create songs but it's interesting how um i first heard them when i went to the library and would like check out 20 cds at a time uh-huh. um and just kind of binge on a bunch of music and i wasn't like crazy about it when i first heard them and that's something like that surprises me now because what really got me into them was seeing their last live show at Lollapalooza, uh-huh. and um i i had i was a fan of the album the woods for sure, when I saw them, but I wasn't like head over heels until I saw them, their energy performed live, and it, yeah. it sort of blew my mind. And also, it was very funny that 
I ran into um, uh, the lead singer and Carrie Brownstein in the Kids of Palooza section of Lollapalooza. Did you really? Yeah, it was really you- cute. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So um, any- anyway, um, yeah, like I was saying, seeing them live is what made me fall in love with them. And, um, you know, nowadays, like, it was supposed to be their last show. Their very, very last oh, show. Oh, uh-huh. And nowadays you can't take much stock when a band says that because and i'm happy i'm really excited that they're back together oh yeah and i love their first single and from what i know i think their new album's coming out like in a couple weeks yeah yeah i think it's coming out next month and uh we have tickets to see them in february and i'm just like i'm so so excited because i've been waiting i've been waiting for this for like 10 years it's been yeah, it's been ten years since they broke up, and I mean, when they broke up, it was they were kind of like you know, well, you know, one of us had a kid, the other one's kind of having health problems, and they kind of want to do their own projects. So yeah, I, I always kind of like held on to that hope that they would get back together. But even if they never did, um, you, you mentioned the Woods, and that was kind of like your your gateway to them, and. Mm-hmm. It, it, like if the Woods had been their last album, I would be like a hundred percent okay with that because sure. it feels like such a like a perfect encapsulation of of what they're trying to do. Where it's like it's like harsh and it's punk, but it's also yeah very like uh, very sophisticated in, in how it's in how it's put together. Um, I st- you know I, I still have to say though, uh, like having listened to um, all their albums many times over. I mean, I've been a fan of them for like. 15 years now uh i still think dig me out's my favorite like like i still think it's yeah that that tends to happen with favorite bands like the album that made you fall in love with them is yeah. the album that you know sticks with you over time but yeah no that's great great choice um excited Thank you. to uh re-listen to this like because i'm i'm planning to make a mix uh just you know to have for myself and anyone else i want to share it with uh you know through the blog of just the songs that everybody chooses, so this is going to be great. To oh, cool! Yeah. yeah. Is is Patrick jamming out in the background? Yes, he is. Oh wow, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks, Regina, for being on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Ever since oh, you're you, so great. Ever since hearing you on Nick's, uh, Nick DiGilio's radio show on uh, WGN, I just think you're a fantastic storyteller. Oh. Just a wonderful conversationalist in general. So, oh, um, thank you. Yeah, you've, you've had quite the history. <laughs> in terms I of have had quite the stories. history. Thank you. But I wanted to talk with people that you know have either been on the show or that I really – um, respect about what mm-hmm. song sort of changed their lives. What song means yeah. the most to them? And I know you would probably have a great contribution. So I do. Fire I think away. I do. Okay, so my the song that changed my life is a song that I heard when I was about four or five years old, and it's um, it's um, a South African Miriam Makiba. 
um, Ooh, who, hmm. uh, do you know Miriam Makiba? I don't think so. No. Okay. Hmm. So check her out. She's a, she passed away, but she's a, um, I think she passed away in the, in the 2000s, the early 2000s, but she was sort of a, a South African folk hero. And, um, it, my father, my father was really, really into music. And so we grew, I grew up with a lot of vinyl in our house and, a lot of other stuff that was amazing, a lot of blues, um, a lot of uh, folk. But um, but the song that changed my life was the song, okay, it's a Miriam Makiba, and you can obviously look up how to spell it and all that, but uh, her, the song is Pata Pata, hmm. and it's, 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 yeah, it's amazing. I think it's just P-A-T-A, P-A-T-A. And, and the reason that it changed my life was that when, when I was a kid, I, it, um, it was like nothing that I had ever heard before because, you know, in a lot of um, South African uh, dialects and, um, and, um, and um, singing, they have, they, they use this clicking tongue sound. I don't know if you've ever, um, yeah, it's really fascinating and I'm not sure what, what exactly it's called, but, um, and it's, so it was like a festival of, um, of sounds for me and like a, a, you know, cause I grew up with a lot of like Dylan and, um, and, um, blues like, you know, Muddy Waters and Howlin' sure. Wolf. But this, but this was like something from another world, you know, to me. And it was, her voice is so clear and beautiful and like compassionate and caring. And, uh, it just, it just opened my ears to, to a whole new, um, world of music that that you know went way beyond the sort of American music or uh, folk music or blues music that I had I had known before that. And my father put it on, and I was like, I just I I remember being being that age and being like, what is this? You know, what I mean? <laughs> like this is awesome. And her album is called Pata Pata, but the song Pata Pata. Um, is my favorite song of all time. And it, 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 it is a, Pata Pata is a dance, as far as I know, is a dance that was performed in South Africa. And I, I'm not sure if it was sort of a traditional dance or if it was a sort of a modern dance. I know that it was a dance and, um, and probably still is a dance that they do if I'm, if I'm not wrong. And, and I, and it just was beautiful. You know, it just, sure. her, she's just beautiful. Her voice was, and she was also a huge anti-apartheid activist. And she, she really changed the way that um, she sort of became the, you know, um, revolutionary through her music kind of a woman in South Africa, the way, you know, other people in the U.S. were um, sort of changing, changing the times there as well, here as well. But she's, during apartheid, she was like one of the, the from for, in my knowledge, um, one of the only women recording artists and sort of folk heroes that stood up against apartheid. Um, all that I learned later, obviously, yeah. not when I was four or five, but it just <laughs> stopped me in my tracks. We had a, you know, we had a Sears and Roebuck turntable and speakers from like 1969 that my parents got at their wedding and I just remember my sitting down we had this um orange shag carpeting you know because it was the 70s and yeah, in, in, in our living too. room you know mm-hmm. and sitting on that and pressing my ear on the speaker and being like 
this is amazing. I, I, you know, this is amazing. There's something about the quality of her voice and her, the clicking tongue and the, um, the pureness of that. She just, she's, and sweetness too. She's a real compassionate sounding lady. So that's the song that changed my life, you know, and I think I was thinking about it and I was like, well, obviously there's a lot of songs that I love, but that's the first song that I can remember really being like, whoa, you know what I mean? This is, this is important. And I'm so grateful that I was exposed to to that at a young age because world music then became a huge part of, of my life. You know, I have a great admiration and love for music from different parts of the, the world, you know? Oh, certainly, yeah. I think, you know, it's interesting how, of course, I grew up listening to Beatles records and Beach yeah. Boys and all that stuff. And then out of nowhere, like, my dad would introduce me to something like Frank Zappa. Yeah, you know, my grandparents played Harry Belafonte, and this was before yes. Beetlejuice came out. You know, and I, yes. I, heard, I heard him, and I'm like, I love this Deo song, yes. whatever it is. And I had no idea like what it meant or anything. I just thought it was catchy. Right, as hell. right. It's just new, and it's and yeah. it was like it's like something different, and has a great beat and fun, and yeah, that's how that's how cheap Miriam McKeeba was for me as well, and I. I, to this day, you know, I have this CD in my car. I'm not an iPod person. I I bought two iPods and both were stolen. Oh. So I took that as a sign. I was supposed to just stick with CDs in my car. So I have the best of Mary Makiba in my visor, little CD carrier, and I, I still put it in. And before I have shows or before I, I do something important, I usually listen to her because she reminds me of my family because, unfortunately, both my dad and my mom have passed away. Mm-hmm. So um, my childhood, I sort of um, remember it through song. And yeah, then absolutely. I think of my parents. You know, you know how that is where mm-hmm. a song reminds you of a certain part of your life and your family life. Well, thanks, so, Jen, so much. That was yeah. it. Was so great to hear that, and I'm really excited to look up the song. And obviously, I'm going to link to it in our show sure. notes. Sure, so everybody can hear it and, and discover music too. Yeah, and send me a copy. I'd love to hear oh, hear yeah, the podcast. Absolutely. Is your are, are your um, shows that you've appeared on available as podcasts? Yeah. So, so all Ooh. of the shows from WGN that I was on with Nick are available and then my new shows are going to be available. Two of them are available and we're waiting on the New Year's Eve one, but they'll all be available at WGNRadio.com. Excellent, Jen. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing you more and hopefully we can uh, collaborate again in the future. I would love that. You have a really good day. You too now. Talk to you soon. Okay. chime in here first of all since uh that last voice you heard uh belongs to the great jen bosworth an actress a live stage presence and storyteller she's also been on uh, a constant contributor on wgn radio as well 
she's someone I think you'll be hearing more from in the future, since um, I've enjoyed all her appearances on the radio, and mm, she might be hosting her own show uh, sooner than later, but she's got some fill-in slots, uh, and I'm very excited for her. And what a joyful song she chose as well. Uh, something I'd never heard before, but I'm glad I did. Uh, so for my first choice, and I know I'm cheating by going with two tracks on this episode, but uh, I think it's warranted since I'm hosting the show. No, uh, since I can... Actually, I think it's actually fitting because I can pinpoint two instances where I would say a song kind of saved my life or changed my life or made me want to invest more of myself into songwriting. Um, I'm going to start off with... The more sunny side here with the song by indie queen darling Liz Fair. Someone that I actually had the pleasure of meeting um, at South by Southwest in Austin way back in 2002. And as I, uh, <laughs> I'm not ashamed to say this, but as I walked away from meeting her, I started to tear up like, I'd, like I'm sure um, ladies do when they meet a backstreet boy. But, um, yeah, that's true. I did tear up after I met Liz Fair at South by Southwest. Um, I mean, it, you know, I had a personal investment, and uh, I, I, had, I had the luxury of meeting two musicians that made me want to start writing songs in the first place, uh, Matthew Sweet and Liz Fair. Um, I would say, though, that uh, Kurt Cobain made me want to buy a guitar and play chords, uh, which I know it's probably cliche, but it's true. The two, like I said, the two songwriters of the early '90s that made me want to write songs were Matthew and uh, Liz Fair, and it was great to have met both of them <laughs> back then, just briefly. And wow, uh, I was overwhelmed to say the least. And yet, I can't deny the fact too that both of my heroes from that era have really faltered over time, um, especially in terms of new material being very underwhelming for me, yet I still listen to everything that they do because I'm loyal like that, and man, Liz Fair, she moved to California at one point, met Sheryl Crow, and decided she wanted to be Avril Lavigne. That was a really strange time, a really strange moment for me in music, because I think it was 2003, um, a year after I'd met Liz Fair, and I'd heard a couple of the songs that would eventually make her overly produced pop record. And I heard them raw acoustically, and I thought they were fine. I actually thought, oh, cool, maybe this will be like her white chocolate space space egg record. Um, but no, it turned out to be utter crap. Um, overly produced FM dance pop. And I remember like her and Jewel sort of trying that out around the same time and failing. Um, and just... It was awful. It was devastating to hear one of my favorite songwriters essentially sell out. And, you know, I know that she's kind of sick of hearing that, but it's true. It's very true. It, there's no way I can say, like, oh, yeah, I give it I give it a pass because it's Liz Fair. No, it's it was awful, awful songwriting for her, I guess I think it was a self-titled uh, record with, like, Why Can't I Breathe and Rock Me and just, like, horrible, horrible cliche pop songs. And, um, but let's get to the good stuff. Liz Fair put out an album 
that opened me up to the experience of being a woman at the time when I was just becoming friends with them, becoming attracted to them, dealing with complicated relationships in my uh, high school days, and of course, my first major crush was crush was also named Liz, but that's a whole other story. Um, <laughs> when I first heard Exile in Guyville, it was kind of a revelation. I'd never heard lyrics like that. The production was just raw and unpolished. Yeah, I mean, it sounded like, not necessarily like it was on a four track, but it was on a, it sounded like it could be recorded at a local studio, and it was recorded in a local studio, I believe in Wicker Park, uh, in Chicago. So, I don't know, there was just like, I had a romanticism with uh, indie rock at that time, even if it was just known as alternative at the time, but still, it, her record was like mind-blowing for me. It was life-changing. And I know a lot of musicians hear a band like Velvet Underground or Pavement or something like that and decide that they want to write songs on the basis of how lo-fi it sounds. Um, you know, punk rock, of course. You know, that also you know, had a huge wave at the time, and a movie like We Are the Best sort of captures that excitement of, let's just pick up guitars even if we have no idea what the fuck we're doing. Um... And despite me knowing a few chords here and there, I really wasn't like investing. I was I wasn't investing in my own music until about I'd say 1994, 95, when I joined a band, and you know a lot of it, a lot of my style was influ- influenced by you know the romanticism of someone like Matthew Sweet and the lyrical honesty of Liz Fair, and like I said, um, despite her record being lo-fi, there are still melodies and hooks. So, but really, there's just no way I can look past how emotionally honest and open she was on that record. A song like Flower, kind of, you hear it and it's weird. It's just a weird song, but it sort of deconstructs the way men view women by her taking on the perspective of a sexist, essentially, or not necessarily that. It's more of like she's just becoming what men perceive women to be or want to be. And that's something that, like, I really wrestled with when I first heard the song. I was like, is she, like, really this, you know, sexual? And how do I feel about that? But for me, I almost found it to be a satire of, um, you know, the male psyche in some strange capacity. I, But... You know, I think the whole record, too, Liz Fair affirms her sexuality. And so it takes on this, like, interesting dichotomy and sociological context because it has this examination of gender struggles. But, um, you know, at some point she comments on how men view women. But on a song like Canary, which is the one I really wanted to include, but it's not the song, um... It's a great piano ballad about about a, about a unhappy housewife setting her belongings on fire. It's a gorgeous song. It's a standout on Exile and Guyville, and probably one of the songs on there I would say um, holds up in a million ways. And every time I hear it, I get goosebumps. But for me, really, it all started with divorce song, which changed my life, opened my mind up to kind of a raw intensity in music. And just, like, a vulnerability that I wasn't used to at that time. Um, You know, it brought me pure joy when I heard it. I was just like, why can't all music be like this? 
And the snippet I'm going to play includes my favorite line on the enti- my favorite lyric on the entire album, involving like the clashing of friends and lovers. And at the time I heard it, it rang completely true. So, Liz Fair is responsible for me becoming a songwriter first and foremost before any of the others. I mean, I, yes, I'd listen to the Beatles and uh, Nirvana and all that, but uh, I would say that. Liz Fair is what made me get a notebook and write song lyrics and start learning out how learning how to write music and therefore my choice is Divorce Song as one of two songs I would say changed my life forever. I would have stayed in your bed for the rest of my life just to prove I was right that it's harder to be friends and lovers. And you shouldn't try to mix the two Cause if you do it and you're still unhappy Then you know that the problem is you And it's true that I stole your lighter And it's also true that I lost the map But when you said that I wasn't worth talking to I had to take your word on that But if you I'm very excited to include one of my favorite podcasters out there, not just because we have similar tastes, uh, for the most part anyway. Um, Corey Pierce from The Soundtrack of Your Life had me on to talk about a personal collection of songs from the film Pump Up the Volume, and I had a great time talking with him, of course, and uh, I enjoy, I just thoroughly enjoy hearing him talk all things film and music related. So I wanted to ask him, of course, um, which song he chose as being one that had a huge impact on his life. So, Corey, what is your choice? Uh, My choice is I Am Not a Robot by Marina and the Diamonds. I'm not familiar with that one. Okay, uh, this song was released uh, late 2009, early 2010. Um, it was one of those kind of you know UK versus US releases sort of things. Uh, Marina herself has put out uh, two full-length albums and is uh, about to release a third one. Um, she's odd. Uh, she's definitely like a pop singer, but uh, especially in the beginning, like the first album, a lot of the songs, like the lyrical content was... Uh, not what you normally hear. It's very kind of, you know, negative uh, and not in the usual sort of love lost sort of way. Hmm. Uh, her second album was almost a concept album about uh, like being like a, a dumb celebrity or a housewife and stuff like that, where she took on another character. And the new album, she's doing like a, like um, almost like a Dolce Vita kind of like glamour thing um but in each album there are her lyrical content for me is what has really made me always uh connect to her um she's kind of got a voice that is somewhere in that uh kate bush Susie and the banshees zone and uh she and florence and the machine emerged at around the same time probably for the same reasons like their first albums were maybe a a lot more similar than they are now as artists i would say because florence kind of just kept going the same path and just got more bombastic whereas marina kind of made things a lot more varied 
And I'd say like uh, Charlie XCX is maybe the only other pop star that has really been compared to her maybe directly. But even Charlie XCX has kind of wandered on her own path. Hmm. Um, as for uh, I Am Not a Robot and what it made it, uh, a huge difference to me is um, uh, in, on February 14th, Valentine's Day 2010, uh, my 10-year uh, ex and I, like, that was when everything basically, you know, exploded. And um, I didn't see it coming. And obviously I was, like, torn to shreds. And I don't even need to go into the details of, of why I think the 10 years and everything and, and it happening on Valentine's Day speaks for itself. Um, but uh, at that same time, um, Critical Mass Cast, which I was not a part of, um, wasn't I wasn't even uh, it was like within the first 10 episodes and around episode six or seven was Ryan and Greg doing an entire episode devoted to Marina and the Diamonds. And it's maybe one of the only times other than the Lady Gaga special we did that we've ever um, done that sort of thing entirely devoted to one artist. They would just be were completely obsessed fanboys uh, over this album. And I was just listening to it on the way to work at the CBC at the time, just completely you know, distraught. Um, I didn't have like a self empowerment anthem or any, you know, I was just kind of listening to angry music, if anything. <laughs> um, and uh, so I'm listening to like being forced to like kind of listen to the snippets of this album over and over. And I was really uh, immediately drawn to it. Um, but it wasn't really until I went home and watched the video and listened more intently to uh, I Am Not a Robot. Um, well, first of all, Marina is very easy on the eyes. She's she looks kind of like what a, a Greek pinup model is supposed to look like. Um, um, and the video is uh, kind of a close-up of herself, and she's got like various sorts of kind of body paint going on. Like one's kind of looks like a, like a David Bowie, Aladdin Sane kind of thing, and one's just kind of got, you know, interesting like like lipstick and, and eyeliner, and one's where she's completely bare, and one where she's like painted with like, like glitter paint to look like a robot sort of in one way or another. And uh, it really just calls a lot of attention to the lyrics and the lyrics of the song, uh, which overall I guess is about kind of just being shy. But thing is the lyrics um, to the song uh, are meant to be very uh, on one hand are very supportive, but at the same time they're calling a person out for not realizing it. And it was exactly what I needed at the time. And uh, some of the lyrics, for example, like right from the get-go, like just kind of immediately just uh, it's like you've been acting awful tough lately, smoking a lot of cigarettes lately, but inside you're just a little baby. <laughs> um, and uh, kind of going on, but in the, in a pre-chorus would be like you're vulnerable, you're not a robot, uh, you're lovable, but you're just troubled. And uh, oh, like um, never committing to anything, you don't pick up the phone when it rings. Uh, don't be so pathetic. Just open up and sing. And there's even more like that. I mean, it's just a short three and a half minute song. Um, and especially with the video when it kind of gets towards the end. And it's mostly kind of like at this time kind of a plunka plunka kind of uh, piano music uh, with a little bit of uh, orchestration. And uh, and she doesn't really soar the same way that Florence does in that kind of semi-nasal like banshee sort of way. She just kind of uh, has a different, much more inherently emotional, uh, like legit emotional tone to her voice that when things kind of just explode towards the end, like I was like in tears, like watching this music video. And I think I watched the music video like a dozen times in a row and 
that entire album became like the album I think I've listened to the most in my entire life. And I think maybe the culmination of kind of the empowerment and sort of getting over things was when um, at a concert in 2010, uh, later in the year, um, I could not do this now. She's uh, had a number one album in the UK and is still, and in Toronto is popular enough now that she like uh, feels like a much larger venue. But in late 2010, after the show, she went outside the opera house to meet every single person who wanted to kind of come out. So I have a picture of myself and her. And I'm not normally a, a smiler in photos. I'm not good at it. Yeah, same here. Like, because I, I don't like putting up a fake smile and right. you know whatever. Um, but I, I, the photo I have with her is like me doing a, a very rare, like natural. Oh my god, I'm so thrilled. Uh, smile. Um, and overall, like if it weren't for like Marina and for that song, um, uh, Greg from Critical Mass Cast and I probably wouldn't have like hung out and kind of connected the way we did. And jumping from there, I probably wouldn't have been so active in podcasting and I wouldn't have met kind of all these people in Toronto uh, and the film pub people around here and and gotten so involved, which when after like a 10 year breakup, you kind of need that sort of new community and friends of your own and stuff like that to sort of help yourself grow and rebuild. Um, And even kind of podcasting itself uh, over time can help, you know, loosen yourself up, especially if you're a person with you know, uh, anxiety or shyness in certain social situations. And so, uh, overall, like stemming all from, you know, one, uh, breakup empowerment ballad, uh, all this stuff can happen. Wow. Yeah, no, I wholeheartedly relate. I mean, that's, uh, kind of like the, the Nick Hornby approach too with music and just having that, um, you know, incredible connection to a song at a particular moment in time and it resonates with you in that way and it helps you get over something that's you know very difficult to to process and when a song can do that for you that's a huge reason why i love music so much because (laughs) it helps get me through those uh moments in time but yeah no that's that's great i'm really excited to listen to this song and the the whole record now thanks Corey. really yeah, appreciate um it. ironically uh i have an, a friend who is going through a breakup of her own right now mm. and definitely needs a, a pickup and emotional boost and i didn't even go to this song because she has a brand new song called happy which is about uh like accepting and finding yourself before you can be happy with another person and it's written in a way where if someone wasn't paying attention, they would think it was about finding God and religion. But she's using it as an analogy of basically that of, you know, like that yourself is your own company and yourself is your own divinity oh, nice. that can basically, uh, uh, you know, pull you through. And so she's using that as her kind of, well, uh, anthem. At least she's telling me that she is. So uh, that's what's out there right now. Great. Well, thanks for... Uh uh, coming on the show here, Corey. Really appreciate uh, your contribution. Guess what?
Ackerman. How you doing, Jim? <laughs> I am really excited to hear um, your choice for the song that changed your life, because the more and more I get to know you, and especially since you know I asked you recently what some of your favorite bands were, um, yeah. our tastes kind of align pretty accurately together sometimes. <laughs> so, um, well, well, go ahead and tell me your choice, because well, you know, it's funny. Like I, 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 I read your whole email, and I didn't have one song that I could pick for my life-changing song, but the song that I wanted to, I guess, give props to, and it's not a, even a hit song, it's like a song that everyone makes fun of probably, but is uh, Blue Oyster Cult's Don't Fear the Reaper. Really? Oh, wow. Um, it was, I don't know if you were like me, where like you read like record guides and things. Oh, yeah. Growing up. So that was actually a song that I read about years before I heard it, because I didn't listen to classic rock radio, I didn't have parents that listened to like that generation of bands. So it was something where, like, I was watching Halloween, and I heard it in the background of when Lori and Annie are driving around getting stoned. Mm-hmm. And I just caught the look and like, oh, that's that song. And then I just started hearing it, like, everywhere, because I knew what to listen for. And so it just was like a song I thought was, like, kind of catchy, you know, whatever, when I first heard it. And then... Like years later, I went on this road trip where a friend and I, for my birthday, were going to go find the locations from Let's Scare Jessica to Death. And I made playlists for that trip. They were just all like minor key, kind of mellow songs from that era that might kind of better put us in the world of that film. So I found the demo version of that song, which doesn't have the cowbell. It even has a suck up in the guitar solo, but it feels like a lot more like, I don't know what the word would be like winsome. Like it feels like a little bit more like, like young guys just coming upon fire by accident, like cavemen. <laughs> like it just feels like, this feels like a, like a more, um, I don't want to say like unpretentious cause not like the, 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 the hit version is pretentious, but like just like like a like a more informal kind of feel to it, and so I just really started getting more into that song, kind of associating it maybe with, um, like I have a certain kind of attraction to like the whole death of the '60s kind of thing, where like the um, counterculture's idealism kind of gives way to like a despondent '70s cynicism. Oh, that must and, explain too why you love Altman and Inherent Vice, and, <laughs> and let's get Jessica to death. Yeah, because yeah, that's sure. kind of the subtext of that film. And when I listen to something like Don't Fear the Reaper, maybe because it has like some superficial kind of resonances to things like The Birds, which I think of as 60s. And that song is, you know, quite you know, clearly about death. I think somehow I'm drawing a kind of meaning into it that isn't really there, like where it intended, but like a sort of like death of the 60s kind of ballad, because they would represent kind of a more kind of crash, crash kind of like commercial hard rock of the 70s kind of thing for a lot of people, or at least like like a kind of a biker rock kind of thing. Like, they're not a band I ever really followed too closely, but I don't know, for some reason, that all that kind of swimming together, like the melodies and the hooks of it, plus like that kind of like extra kind of um, death of the 60s kind of weight to it. Like, I think that's that's one song that I never really get sick of, even though it's very overexposed. Um, but so that's, that's my answer. Oh, that's great. That's a great choice. Because, like, again, it's a song that I associated because of SNL and, you know, Christopher Walken and all that. But still, before that hit, I mean, before that was shown, 
um, yeah, I, I associated with Halloween, and my dad owned a Blue Oyster Cult record, so it was oh, wow. <laughs> it was a song that I had heard intermittently, but certainly if we had a classic rock station on, it would pop up, and I always thought the structure of it was cool, like, you know, and it, it was a unique classic rock song that never got, you know, um, just dull. I mean, it just never felt like a, a boring classic rock song. You know, in the same way, like I'm not, I'm not a big fan of um, hearing the Who's "Baba O'Reilly" for the millionth time. But if right. um, "Don't Fear the Reaper" comes on, I'm totally okay with keeping it on. You know, it's not something yeah. that gets old for me. So I, I agree. I, I think it's something. There's like something sinister and pretty at the same time. I don't really mm-hmm. need it to go into like the bombastic midsection that it does, but I'm relieved when it comes back to the to the to the hooks. Yeah, uh, that's what I like about it too. Like, it almost becomes, I, like, a yes song for just a second. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, I can forgive them, because that's whatever, that's the, that's the genre they're working in. But I think that there's something about that song that kind of transcends a lot of the other material of theirs I've heard. It's also a song that I I can really tolerate nearly any cover version of it. Like, I have, I have like, one with a Latin feel. I have, like, electro versions. I think Elliot Smith did it once. <laughs> Oh, wow. uh, ironically, uh, Twilight Singers uh, actually used to do it, uh, I think, um, going that into Uptown again from the Afghan Wigs. Um, yeah, there's like there's that acoustic version uh, in Scream uh, at one point, the Wes Craven film. Yep. Um, kind of obviously not to Halloween, but like even that like kind of like, you know, whatever you would call that kind of like corporate rock acoustic ballad version of it. It's still kind of like, it's still a good song even in that version. Well, maybe I'll have to do my own take on it because it's one of the few songs I haven't covered yet. I have so many covers out there at this point and it's a song that um, I enjoy still. So thanks yeah. a lot, Bill, for the choice. Great choice. Oh, not, not a problem. And if you, cho- if you choose to put a clip of it in your song, I will. try to find that demo version that's on the Agents of Fortune reissue. <laughs> Okay, yeah, if you can find it, just shoot me the link for it, or if it's on YouTube or whatever, if you find I'll it. I'll see if I can find it. I'll send, I'll send you the link if it is. <laughs> awesome, Bill. Seasons don't fear the reaper, nor do the wind, the sun, or the rain. with uh, previous guests of the show and dear friends about a song that means a lot to them, a song that sort of changed their lives, you know, holds a special place uh-huh. in their heart. So what would be your choice? Um, are we recording right now? We sure are. Oh, great. <laughs> cool. <laughs> um, so my choice would be um, Sarah by Fleetwood Mac. And not by Starship. Not by Starship. Okay. Um, not by, I think Bob Dylan has one. Yes. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. No. Uh, Fleetwood Mac. Sarah. Good choice. Um, yes. Uh, and that song is, it's so funny because it's, I, I could easily rewrite this story to be that I, I loved that song and it was one of my favorite songs. And so then I wrote this book about this character named Sarah. And then I, when I, 
when I came out and started transitioning, I just chose the name Sarah for myself, all starting from the song. But that wasn't the case at all. Actually, I um, started writing this book about this character named Sarah, and um, it was about her... uh, It was about fire, and um, a lot of it was about her house and a beach, and... um, it's a book of uh, poems, of prose poems, and uh, then um, I started listening to Fleetwood Mac and uh, hadn't really been a big Fleetwood Mac fan before that and started listening to Fleetwood Mac and um, found out that they had this song named Sarah, which I'd probably heard before in a grocery store or something but hadn't really <laughs> thought about before, and um started listening to this song and found out that it, you know, it had like all these connections to the things that were coming out of me in my writing. And, um, it became really special to me for that reason. And, um, uh, so yeah, I mean, the chorus, Sarah, you're the poet in my heart. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, all this stuff about, uh, you never told me about the fire. My book's called Sarah, The Existence of Fire. Um, and talks about if you build your house, like, there's just so many, like, just, just sort of image things in there. Um, and I don't really know what the song is supposed to be. I mean, I don't think it has a plot or anything like that. And that's the thing I really like about it actually is it's kind of, um, uh, I don't know. It can be a lot of different things. And, um, it, it ended up being like really special to me. Um, it's, I, I do it at karaoke sometimes. Oh, that's cool. Um, and yeah. it's, um, so yeah, it's, I don't know. It's kind of a theme song for me now. Um, terrific so, yeah. choice. Um, yeah. you know, it's when you bring up things like, you know, fire and houses. It brings me back yeah. sort of autobiographically in a way, just um, to when you and I were texting back and forth as you were watching Synecdoche, New York. And like your uh-huh. yeah, overwhelming totally. response to the imagery in that movie, the same way that I had the same response when I first saw it. And we were just sort of like really connecting with that film and yeah. you know it's interesting like reading your book and like just seeing little sort of Kaufman-esque imagery pop up here and there in your writing and i think that's 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 really great and i you know encourage almost everybody in the in the world to see Synecdoche New York even if yeah. you don't get it <laughs> cuz it's just i it's funny poetic. i watched I watched that movie because I show I was writing that book and showed some of the poems to a friend of mine, and he was like, um, "Have you seen Cynic in New York? This reminds me a lot of that." And so I watched it when I was in the middle of writing the book still, and then yeah. after I watched it, I, it gave me all these extra ideas for the book that I, that I ended up. Um, I ended up. I think I paused it at some point in the movie and like wrote stuff down to like put in the book. Yep. That happens to me too. So, when I see that yeah. movie, it's like it it channels something in you that's sort of in your subconscious, and that's something that yeah. is really powerful. And uh, that's totally. why it remains one of my favorite movies to this day too. But yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm so proud of you for your accomplishments with writing and everything. It's great. Oh, yeah. thanks. I, I I can't wait to keep reading more and more and. Uh, you know, I would definitely like you to contribute some lyrics because I'm sort of collaborating with people, um, including Patrick and a couple other 
musician friends yeah. all the way back from high school. So I want to put out Yeah. I'm putting out sort of like I've, my own record and then a supplemental kind of record too where I'm collaborating with different mm-hmm. people. Um, cool. I want to do that. I have not been writing songs lately at all. Like I haven't written a song in quite a while. Um, but I, I am, I'm up for giving it a shot. Yeah. That'd be wonderful. Well, let's be in touch more through this new year. And, um, if yeah. you're, um, close by, let me know, or if I can ever make it out there, I'd love to visit. So cool. Yeah. Awesome. I would love you to visit. Well, take care, Sarah. I miss you. Yeah. Soon. I miss you too, Tim. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. talking with Andrew James of the Cinecast and Row3.com. Um, one of my favorite podcasters out there, and I'm sure eventually we'll do a Soderbergh Part 2 episode with him. Mm, looking forward to it. Yeah, that'll have to happen. Um, in the meantime, I do um, know that he is an avid music listener. Um, you know, he does kind of what I do and sort of binge listen more towards the end of the year, I would think, when you start seeing best of the year lists and records that um, are making a lot of those lists. It's something I kind of do, too, at the end of every year. Um, Mm -hmm. So, obviously, you're a huge music enthusiast as well. And I'm just curious, what song would you say had a huge impact on your life um, that sort of resonates with you the most? Um, yeah, I mean, that was a great question when you put it to me because immediately like four or five songs, you know, just popped into my head. I want to pick something from when I was eight or something when I graduated high school or after college or what. So, um, it was a little tricky to narrow down, but I kind of, I kind of just decided at the end to go with, uh, you know, it might sound like a little bit of a cheesier choice. Uh, Dave Matthews band Ants Marching. Really? Wow. Okay. I don't know what year that came out. Ninety. Four, I think, maybe 93, 95, somewhere in there. Was that Under um, the Table and, and Dreaming? Was that, that under, yeah, under the Table and Dreaming record, yeah. And okay. I know in, in recent years, to be a fan of Dave Matthews is, is kind of passe, like it's kind of cheesy now or whatever, but um, I, still, I still like those early records a lot. I, I go back to them once in a while and, and check them out. And the reason I, I picked Ants Marching is something that really changed uh, kind of my outlook on music is because it was really the first band that I really got into that wasn't two guitars, a bass player, a drummer, and a singer. Like every band, you know, the typical Beatles, four-piece or five-piece rock band that I listened to my whole life. And then all of a sudden, here's this band that's really cool, that still can rock out, but it's a violin and a saxophone and an acoustic guitar. In a bass player. There's no electric guitar in it at all. Um, I never thought of that. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. And it really, 
it changed my my perspective on music as a whole. I realized, oh, here's all this um, here's all this other music that I can sort of get into now that I never really realized exist, especially like in college. So you have to understand this is 95, 96 started to get into some of those, I guess you'd call them hippie stoner bands, you know, like the string cheese incident or rusted root or widespread panic panic for sure. Um, I got into a lot of that stuff mostly because Dave Matthews just opened my eyes to, Oh, you don't need power chords and, um, you know, pyrotechnics to put on a show that just kicks ass. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I went with just be, just for the way it changed music for me that I can listen to all this other stuff. And eventually that led into even, you know, jazz and some classical music that I probably, maybe I would have stumbled upon anyway, as you get older and mature a little bit, but it probably happened a little bit faster just because of Dave Matthews. And the reason I picked Ants Marching specifically is that was kind of their, on that record, the Under the Table and Dreaming record, that was their the signature song. They ended all their concerts with it. That's the song everyone wanted to hear. And it was because it was really catchy. It had cool lyrics that sort of were nostalgic. Um, and it crescendos into a great, a pretty, pretty nice ending. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I went with. I don't know what your experience with Dave Matthews band is, but, um, I am not the biggest fan, but I will say that if I were to make, a mix of maybe 10 to 12 songs, I'd be pretty happy with it because they're at least because I am good friends with a huge Dave Matthews fan. So if I ever go to hang out with him every now and then he'll play me something that stands out for him. Um, even, and it could be even on an older record. And there was a time where um, I would say I would even check out, uh, I, I remember I was most impressed with Busted Stuff, which I think was, was oh, yeah. like a collection of demos or... I can't <laughs> yeah, it was like B-sides and demos and stuff that was actually really good. Yeah, and totally. And I think partly it was, it was really good, partly because um, it... Okay, so Under the Tail Dream came out, then Crash, and then um, uh, Before These Crowded Streets. And then after that, their sound really started to change. They did add electric guitars and some other yeah, instruments. Yeah, I remember that. And then Busted uh, busted Stuff came out, and it was like, oh, this sounds like how they used to sound 10 years ago. And right. it's awesome, and there's some really good songs on there. Oh, yeah. So, and yeah. I liked, I mean, there's no denying the craftsmanship of that band. They're all extremely talented musicians, no doubt. Um, and I was... I was kind of into the uh, Dave Matthews, Tim Reynolds live at some college record. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was that's a great stuff. record. Yeah, and I, I still think Satellite is probably my favorite song by them, mm-hmm. and um, I'm a big fan of Gray Street. There's definitely some Dave Matthews songs that you know, if if they come on, you know, my Pandora or whatever, I'm I'm not skipping past them. I'm you know, I, there's some stuff by them I still really, really enjoy. Um, so yeah, I think that's a really great choice because at the time, you're right, I was just pretty much um, absorbed into the alternative scene and discovering bands through yep. MTV's 120 Minutes and stuff. But they, Me too, which is fine. It's great. Um, but yeah. yeah, that's me too. And this was like, just kind of opened my eyes. Oh, you can do this. 
Exactly. So, and I should clarify, I mean, Ants Marching, it's a great song. It isn't necessarily like my favorite Dave Matthews song. It's just the one that really opened me up to listening to the rest of the record. Sure. Um, and, and keep going from there. So, What would you say is your favorite Dave Matthews song out of curiosity? Uh, I, that's tricky. Um, maybe there probably is something. Probably number 41 off of oh, Crash. Yeah. I really like that song. Yeah. Um, Two Step is good. Uh, Warehouse on, on Under the Table and Dreaming is really good, too. There's a lot of songs I really like, but uh, yeah, those would maybe be a top five there or something. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, you're actually inspiring me now to maybe go on Spotify and make a quick Dave Matthews songs I actually like list. <laughs> if you're still, if anyone's still in the holiday mood on their first record, Remember Two Things, um, there's a song called Christmas Song. And uh, it's a good, it's a good little, it's not super um, Christmassy actually. It's just kind of a, a daddy-o version of uh, the nativity and the crucifixion. And it's just, I don't know, it's kind of cool. Nice. So there you go. Yeah. Well, great, Andrew. Thanks so much for popping on here for this bonus episode. Uh, really enjoyed talking with you as always. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing the row three post with the best um, albums of the year from various uh, contributors. So, yes. It should be posted any day now. Just waiting for a couple stragglers, and that'll be out. Awesome, man. Well, take it easy. Uh, looking forward to a new Cinecast 2, and uh, enjoy All catching right. up with the best of 2014. <laughs> okay, will do. Thanks, man. All right, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Cheers. I'm very curious because, um, I mean, you always bring up incredibly interesting, sometimes out of left field, um, choices in terms of, you know, what to talk about. And I don't know your musical taste as well as your film taste. And you're definitely, um, one of my favorite guests from the past. And certainly, uh, even listeners have, um, said the same. And I I would love to hear what you feel is a song that means a lot to you that potentially could have changed your life when you heard it. What is your choice? Well, before I answer that question, I got to tell you, you mentioned people have mentioned me. Somebody added on me on Facebook for hearing the Walter Hill episode. Oh, sweet. And this was a year or two after the fact that I was like, wow, I was that good. You like that much. Well, that and Catherine Bigelow, those were winners for sure. I was very glad that I got to be on an episode about a female director and no less the one that won the Oscar. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, A song that changed my life when I heard it. I am sad that I am not old enough to tell you that Heartbeat by Don Johnson was that (laughs) song. 
Oh, yeah. Or uh, something from uh, the Bruno record, uh, Party All the Time. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And he, it, the, the more actors he got on it, the more uh, the more I'm going to be entertained. Um, this is a recent one, but going to see Drive and hearing Night Call by Kavinsky for the first time was... Oh, pretty- yeah. No shit. That's a great choice. Like... It was like, I've heard this before as an 80s song. And it's not an 80s song. It's a now song. And it's funny enough that I had heard it without knowing it because it shows up in The Lincoln Lawyer. Does it? Yes. It is on The Lincoln Lawyer soundtrack. Oh, that's weird. I didn't know that at all. I mean, now I want to go back and watch Lincoln Lawyer. Huh. The Lincoln Lawyer is a decent movie. Man. It is. I really like it. Like uh, another one of those movies that, with a lot of character actors that show up, and it's pretty sweet. And it's a movie that it was right before the widespread reacceptance of McConaughey start. Yeah, absolutely. And I had seen that, and then I saw Magic Mike, and then the movie that I, that I was over the moon with him in that I didn't hear or nobody saw because it was so off-putting to people was Killer Joe. Mm-hmm. When talking about movies that made a, an impression on me, I had never heard the song Stroken by Clarence <laughs> Park before yeah. until I saw that. Oh, boy. Memorably used in Killer Joe, for sure. Very memorably used uh, during the one scene where Emil Hirsch gets his ass kicked, <laughs> and then later on, at the very end, after fried chicken has been ruined for yeah. the rest of uh um uh yeah, yeah but most certainly i would i would definitely i will definitely say that when the closing or the, the closing the opening credits for drive kick in and that song starts playing i got goosebumps you know and that doesn't always happen it's a cliche answer, especially when you're talking to somebody who has seen a lot more and probably knows a lot more. But holy shit, that that stands out. Okay, I'm going to give you something a little more age appropriate. <laughs> this resonated before I had even seen the movie in full. And that was... In the end credits of Lethal Weapon 2, Cheer Down by George Harrison, written by Tom Petty, I should add. Oh, so a little Traveling Wilburys collaboration. There's Traveling Wilburys connection, yeah. but it's not a Traveling Wilburys song. Okay. But hmm. that movie is just so rapid fire with the action that at the end there's a big catharsis when Murtaugh finally kills uh, Joss Ackland's character and he saved Riggs who's been horribly wounded and you just start to hear the you hear it very vaguely in the film and then you really hear it go into full swing synced up with Donner's credit at the end. Um, and the, the lyrics just kick in and it's just everything coming together on that song's fucking amazing. And that 
has stood out to me since seeing part of the ending during an HBO viewing in the 90s. Yeah, that's something that, wow. I've been meaning to rewatch all the Lethal Weapon movies too because um, it's been a while and I imagine at some point we're going to do a Donner episode, which I I have a feeling a lot of people would be vying for that one. You know what? Bring me on for the Donner episode Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. that guy has had a big influence on my childhood. Yeah, I can Uh, imagine. Lethal, the Lethal Weapon movies and Scrooged, which, by the way, <laughs> is a better Bill Murray movie than Ghostbusters. Mm, I don't know if they hear that and try to kill me and send me death threats, but it's just it's just a brilliantly acted performance. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> All right, man, I got to fly because I got a couple more calls to make for this episode. But um, well, as always, great talking with you, man. And I'll talk to you in a couple months for Larry Cohen. It was a pleasure talking to you, Jim. Thanks, Mike. Great Matt Gamble? <laughs> it is. What's up, Jim? Uh, not a whole lot, man. Just hanging in there and uh, happy to be back in Chicagoland. So, we have online with us Brian De Palma's biggest fan. Uh, <laughs> yep, exactly. From Where the Long Tail Ends, one of my favorites, Mr. Matt Gamble, is with us. How's it going, Jim? Splendid. Um, just v- thrilled to talk with you um, <laughs> regarding music because uh, I'm somewhat familiar with your uh, taste in film, of course, but yeah. not as much with music. And I'm, I'm very curious to learn more about that side. Uh, I know. Th- did you put publish a, publish a book? At one point in the past, because this was way back when I first started listening, I think, and it had something to do with music. And I want to say you wrote about Alice in Chains. I did, yeah, yeah. That's that is quite a while ago now. Probably, Jesus, almost six years, I think. Jeez, I didn't um, see you that long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. While we're old, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It was me and uh, nine other friends. We all each basically took an album. Um, and then wrote short stories based off of the songs, 10 songs in that album. We had other, like we, they were all a thousand words or shorter. So the idea was the book would be similar to like a, you know, a mixtape of, of short stories. Right. Uh, and I, and I picked, um, Alice in Chains and, uh, yeah. And, um, mainly because, you know, they were, huge and they were they were one of my favorite bands in high school and college like pretty much probably everybody in the 90s you know i was big into alternative and (laughs) and all that um and no i don't i don't haven't really talked i don't talk much about music um especially like compared to film and i guess a lot of that has to do is i stopped being super up 
opinionated about music a long time ago because mm-hmm. I I I kind of have the feeling, at least for me, like it's either music or film. Like I only have the effort for one. <laughs> to, <laughs> I understand that. Yeah. <laughs> like it's hard. and it's yeah, hard and I mean, both. at the end of the year, like I I, I sort of go into like uh you know all the lists all the best of 2014 lists and it becomes really overwhelming to try and keep up with both film and music yeah yeah and it, it i mean i used to when i was in high school and college it seemed so much easier and yeah. you know i i and I, I mean i probably wasn't seeing as many films then as i am now like right. i see in the theaters i bet i see close to 300 films a year that's a crap ton of time and, <laughs> and to try and get in albums and stuff like that. I, I just don't have the time or the energy. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It was probably sometime in my mid to late twenties where I was just like, I can't, I can't dump that much effort into new, new music. Like I am with new films. And so I just kind of went with movies and I just started kind of like, if I heard something I liked, I'd look it up and kind of, you know, look for something and kind of look, I, I, I ended up doing a lot. So it kind of similar to like what I do with, with my site and that I just look for like older stuff and just whatever I find interesting and like, and, and, and things like that. Like, I don't, I don't really obsess over music as much anymore. I certainly listen to plenty of it, but I bounce all over the place and don't really give a shit, I guess about <laughs> yeah. like, I, I mean, and on, on top of it, like, I was on a lot of online culture and stuff like that where, you know, movie or music websites are to me, even it's like a, it's like thousands of me on there being opinionated assholes. (laughs) And it was just like, it's just, it was too much effort and too much. I don't give a shit. And too much of the whole idea of getting there first kind of attitude seems way more pervasive in music fandom than it does in movie fandom. Um, and I got kind of turned off by it, but yeah, um, that's understandable. But yeah, I mean, I have I have fairly eclectic tastes, I guess. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I want I had a big Kinks kind of thing about two or three years ago, where I listened to almost every Kinks song <laughs> ever, and because I never really listened to them, and I'll just kind of do stuff like that. And uh, yeah, but, yeah like I, I binge watching and. I, I go through those phases to a binge listening of a band. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just like, I just, to me now music is more of a relaxation kind of thing or a mm-hmm. nostalgic kind of thing. Um, and I just do it for just pure kind of enjoyment. And, and there's no, there's not the work involved anymore. Like Stitcher. I love like <laughs> if something weird comes on the radio. I can pop it on and look it up later and, and that kind of stuff. And, and so, yeah, that's, that is kind of my general feelings on music. Like it is there for enjoyment and that's, I don't, I don't invest enough in it like I used to, or like I do with film. Like it's, it's, it, for me, it's one thing or the other. Yeah. I try to maintain a balance, but it's almost impossible. Like you said. And, you know, I think towards the end of the year, it's just sort of in my nature. It's like, habitual for me to go okay what are the big albums of 2014 even though i'm not keeping up with new music the way i used to Mm -hmm. it's just something i feel like inclined to do just because like okay i'm a musician it's something i should know about and when people are referencing some hip new band that they heard through pitchfork or whatever 
yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. should be somewhat familiar so I can hold a conversation, but overall, I don't put as much investment or even stock into my best of records of 2014 list as I would my movies. So, well, and I yeah, and I guess for me, like music, movies for me, I have much more of like a personal identity with them and like they very much feel especially and how other people rank stuff like i i can kind of i'll be i'll i'm a dick like i totally judge people based on what they like and don't like with movies i don't really give a shit with music like Mm -hmm. i don't care if you like some crappy three minute taylor swift song if it's got a catchy beat fine like great i don't really care it's three minutes of your life it's gonna go along right and and it's it's to me like uh, there's also that like that different amount of investment like music if it's good sure i'll keep listening to it but if it's not it's gone in you know in a minute so i I don't i don't have the length of time and energy anymore to just get that upset or that frustrated that quickly over over a single yeah and it's consumed a lot more differently way whereas way back in the day you had to wait until the oh, yeah. new CD came out and <laughs> yep. went to the store and you paid 15 bucks for for it or whatever and you went home you read the liner notes you sort of sat with it it took a lot yep. of effort just to listen and nowadays you just make a Spotify playlist or whatever <laughs> um, yeah yeah i mean i remember how everybody would like the days a new album the new album day which i what was it wednesdays i can't even remember i think it was tuesdays Where, maybe it could, yeah it was like it was like tuesdays or wednesdays at the lunch hour, there'd be like a stream of cars out of the parking lot to, <laughs> to Best Buy or Target or wherever to go buy the album because it was the one chance we got so we could listen to it day of. Yeah. And like, and that's just not a thing anymore. Like not it's, at all. And it's, it's, yeah, music is consumed totally differently and it's it's so different now than what it was that, you know, it's just it's just kind of there for me. And it's, I mean, I've certainly liked the idea of, I don't own vinyl. I like the idea of vinyl and I would like to own vinyl, but it's, it's another thing where I just like, fuck, that's another crap ton of money. I got to spend on on another entertainment expense. (laughs) And it's like, (laughs) but uh, yeah, I mean, music is just something for me at this point is that I just, I just listen pretty much just purely for pleasure and whatever I like, I like, um, you know, and I try and do, I try and bounce all over. Like with my podcast, I throw all sorts of different styles of music. And it's usually something I recently listened to that I found catchy. And I throw it in at the end of the show or I throw it in on something else. And I just kind of, I just kind of bounce all over now. And I, I, I really enjoy it. Like it's, it, for me, it's an enjoyable way of listening. Yeah. I'm also, I'm, <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that. And, uh, I think one of your podcasts had that, uh, metric song that i absolutely love just because it's catchy you know it's not breaking ground or anything but i'm just like yeah that is a great hook in that song yeah yeah and i yeah and i do a lot of that like i like i find a hook that i think is really catchy and i'll throw it in a show like this sounds really good here's 20 seconds of it and if you like it go find it and and i you know to me that's that's an enjoyable way of of you know, investing and listening in music. Right. So way back when, um, yep. you know, like you mentioned Alice in Chains and, you know, that the bands of that era, 
Um, you know, certainly I identify with that getting into the alternative movement and grunge yep. and like I would say that wood is probably one of my favorite songs from that era. Um, but for you, I'm very curious to learn more about your choice for the song that changed your life or has a lot of meaning for you. What is your choice? Sure. Uh, my choice is undone the sweater song by Weezer. Cool. Um, yeah, <laughs> that I can vividly remember hearing that on alternative radio and being like, "What is this?" I'm yeah, dead. yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, and and for people that don't know, I I grew up in Milwaukee, um, which is a metal town, and ah. you know, and I gr- I graduated high school in '94, and uh, by that point, you know, Nirvana had dropped two albums Pearl Jam was like two in I think Allison Chains that had two or three I don't even think um Soundgarden I don't even think had I think had just done their third album and wasn't even really that popular yet I don't think it was until I was in college but like it certainly was the upswing of alternative and in Milwaukee it still was pretty much a rock town as well um I think that summer like Green Day you know, showed up out of nowhere. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. (laughs) And, um, and like for me growing up in Milwaukee, I heard a lot of rock. I heard a lot of punk, um, you know, probably two of my favorite, you know, two up there up besides Alice in Chains, one of my, you know, two of my other favorite bands are, um, Pantera and, uh, Oh God, now I'm blanking. Um, Christ, I just listened to him. <laughs> uh, oh, the pleasures of being old and your memory yep. just dropping out of your I know. I've gotten to um, the point where um, I start watching a movie. I'm like, I, I thought – I've seen this movie. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, lead yeah. singer, Zach De La Rocha. Why am I blanking oh, on the name of the band? Rage. Rage Against the Machine. Like, Rage, it was huge for me yeah, at that time. I can imagine. Um, and that kind of, like, heavy – kind of, and you know and a lot in nirvana and certainly pearl jam had these big kind of heavy riffs and kind of rock based sort of music like it was all still very rock based but it's certainly no longer getting away from like hair bands and things like that um and the first time i heard undone the sweater song uh is when i went on a college tour up at the university of minnesota uh and i heard it on this it, this the the song is influential as much for the song as for the radio station that played it, which is called, which was Rev 105, um, which is a pretty famous station up here in Minnesota. And I don't know how many people know about it outside of Minnesota, um, but it only lasted about three years and it was kind of a unique format in which it was essentially a bunch of college kids that were allowed to play whatever the hell they wanted to play. There was no format, no nothing, they could play anything. And so they would just bring in whatever they thought was cool and throw it on the air (laughs) and people would listen to it. Uh, And it won awards and it had a very passionate following um, and they would just play crazy shit. You know, they would do, uh, you know, I think they would do like the who, and then they would play green day and then they would play buddy Holly and they would just bounce all over the place. And, and, um, like it's similar to like how if you listen to someone's Spotify playlist or something or Pandora or whatever, like it would just be somebody that had a huge knowledge of music sitting here going, this is really cool. Listen to this. And it was a very curated style 
which at the time was even now for radio is completely unique. Um, you know, but back then it was very much the major labels going, here's the new thing we want you to like, which is kind of what it is now. Yeah. And just listen to this and we're going to hammer away at the single 18 times today until you go buy it. Um, and here were, you know, 10 kids, <laughs> 20 to 25 sitting here going, no, this is really fucking cool. And it also, they also played a ton of local acts and local music. Um, one of the DJs was the daughter of Paul Westerberg. Her name's oh, wow. Mary Lucia. Yeah. Her name's Mary Lucia. Um, and so like they had not, they had street cred, like serious street cred and they would just play super cool shit. Um, and the band they're most famous for breaking is soul coughing. Um, they played them like fucking crazy, which is a band I absolutely love. Me too. And evidently, yeah, evidently the, the, the craziest thing about it, one out of every eight out of soul coughing albums, their initial one were bought in Minnesota. <laughs> like they played the shit out of that album. Wow. <laughs> and, um, and so this, it, I mean, it was just, it was one of those radio stations where you would just instantly, if you're of that age, you know, 15 to 25 at that time, and you're listening to people who give a shit, who have good taste and are going to show you something new every day and give you something new every day. Like it's just like a fucking buffet. Um, and I was on a college tour and I think I had just finished and, um, we were on our way back and I was driving and I hear undone the sweater song come on the air and I'd already had a really great tour. And I hear this song that is so different from anything else I had been listening to on standard radio. And it was, it's actually earlier than I, you know, I think they got an early release and they threw it on. Cause I, I remember going in early June and I was looking it up today and it didn't drop till like the end of June. Like the actual album release wasn't till then. Sure. Um, so I'm guessing it's just an early single they got and sent and went, no, this is neat. Put it on. And I was just blown away by it. Like I was like, Holy fuck, this is something I would. And I never heard it that summer in Milwaukee. Like I never heard it again. And I ended up picking, I ended up choosing the university of Minnesota and part of it, you know, part of that reason was I heard something totally unique that I would never hear in Milwaukee. Hmm. And, you know, and that had a profound impact on the rest of my life. Um, you know, I had I'd already was pretty much sold on the U, but that, that to me was very much a defining thing at the end where I was like, no, this is the right choice for me to make. This has something cool. There's something unique going on up there. And this is right at the tail end of when, you know, Minneapolis was the biggest music city in the country. Right. Um, and you know, and I ended up coming up here and got to experience tons of music that I may or may not have experienced anywhere else. I've gotten to know, you know, tons of musicians up here and I've, you know, that a lot of it I tie into whether or not it's real or not, or it's just implied by my own self and my memory is, that song, like that song really hooked me on. It was so different and so unique and just something that made me want to listen because I'm, I'm listening to a style of song that they somehow became super popular. That typically isn't, you know, you've got people talking to one another over it. You've got 
um, it's a really simple song in a lot of ways. Sure. The, the, the drum work, you know, I listened to it again today. The, dr- the percussion in it is ridiculously simple. There's almost no fills throughout the entire <laughs> thing. <laughs> in fact, the, the, the only fill I recognized was literally a tom and a, and a snare just, I think it was like eight or nine beats straight at the same time, and that's it. Like, there's no nothing else. It's just a simple single beat that they do throughout the whole thing it's driven early on by the bass and then it becomes kind of a rock song and then it kind of they do really interesting harmonizing in it and it's just this it's a very to me it's a very artistic song and that it was getting airplay up here found like just immediately i hooked into it Um, yeah i'm i'm a huge fan of that first weezer record and yeah. for a lot of the reasons, like you mentioned, and uh, it, it was kind of groundbreaking for its time, and it's unlike anything that came out um, in terms of the grunge movement and all that style. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, you know, it, it's unfortunate that Weezer's kind of devolved over the years, but that album in particular holds a very special place in my heart. And what's interesting too, is that when I first heard it on alternative radio, I was like, I was similarly blown away by it and had no idea of the producer of the record. Who yeah, exactly. Rick Ocasek <laughs> of the yep. cars and the cars yeah. first record is track for track. Great. And I loved it when I was like seven years old, <laughs> you know? So, and Rick Ocasek is just a great producer in general and just manages to capture that, you know, power pop, crunchy chord, melodic Mm -hmm. structure that, you know, Weezer's kind of well known for at this point. But other bands have definitely tried to replicate that. Like you mentioned the the talking. Um, I remember there's this band called Not a Surf. Um, yep, yep, they do a lot of it. Popular when that yeah, came out, like that—that exactly. that is almost a ripoff. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, right. No, I mean that's that's a great choice, and you know the the video for Buddy Holly. Jeez, you know yep. that was groundbreaking for its time too. Oh, and yeah, and that like on top of it, like that song spoke to me more about me, like to me as a person, and and that album as a whole, like in the garage, like. Yeah. Say it ain't so. I, I like, yeah, when I'm sitting there listening, I'm like, oh my God, it's I am Rivers Cuomo. <laughs> it's <laughs> as much as, you know, Rage and Pantera kind of got the the angst and the rage that I had and didn't know how to deal with and things like that. Like Weezer kind of got me in that, in the Blue Album. Like it's, it's an incredible album. And that first song, like, and that that's the song they picked to to be the single like it's crazy to me <laughs> yeah. like that would never be done now yeah like, it's exactly just, it's a risky choice but holy fuck it's a great song and it's a song that like you got to get a minute in before you kind of figure out what the fuck they're even doing with it like that's just not a single they would do you know 5 or 10 years later they wouldn't really do something like that it's, no it's, it's a shame that, like, recently, too, like, they say, oh, my God, Weezer's back. They're going back to what they did with the Blue Album. They got Rick Ocasek, and I'm just like, I shrug it off, kind of. <laughs> it's a shame. Yeah. I still try to listen to <laughs> New Weezer, but I just never get that same thrill that I did with the yeah. Blue Record. He actually, yeah, I mean, Rivers actually did a really good interview with Mark Marin recently that I highly yeah. recommend. That's, yeah, that's no, really no. interesting. Like, uh-huh. it's a, it was, and I'm really glad I listened to it. Like, it's. 
it makes a lot of sense once you know, like if you've listened to enough of their albums, him talking about his struggles and his writing process and his obsession, like it totally makes sense why he made the album that he made. And yeah, like it's, I would highly recommend that to anyone, like anyone that's like music, like listen to that, that interview. It's really fascinating. Yeah. I do think Marin's interviews with musicians are, uh, underrated. Like I do enjoy them. I mean, sometimes he's kind of clueless, clueless about their, um, you know, their history or their discography. And it's hard to listen to an entire musician's full, you know, repertoire, but still I, I, I enjoy listening to Mark Marin interview musicians and that one is particularly good. You're right. Yep. All right, Matt. Well, thanks so much for being on, um, and talking to Weezer. It's a great choice. Thanks, man. Yeah. Be in touch. Yeah. Okay. You're welcome. If you want to destroy my I don't know. I mean, this is the 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 whole thing about this is songs that that change your life, right? Yes, um, absolutely. So, so I don't know if this is this is this is a life changing song, but it, it's it was the first song to pop in my mind as a sort of you know, change uh, li- of a life perspective, at least as far as as music goes, and mm-hmm. and as, I guess as far as other things go too. Um, so the song I picked is an arcade fire song and it's the first track off of funeral, which is, uh, tunnels, uh, neighborhood number one tunnels. Um, and I picked that one because I remember when I first heard it, uh, it was around, it was like spring of 2005 and, uh, just going through the, you know, the worst year of my life, basically after a major, major breakup. Um, and, uh, remember hearing that it was, um, you know, it was at the top of a lot of, you know, lists for, you know, best albums of the, of 2004 by a lot of, you know, a lot of music geeks. And I thought, well, I want to hear this. Um, and I remember I asked you to burn me a copy if you could, and you did. Um, and I just, uh, <clears throat> I, I heard one song off the album and that was uh power out and I really liked it, but I, and I wanted to hear the rest of the album. Um, and I just remember, uh, at the same time, U 2s new album had come out in 2004, like November of 2004 and uh me and this ex-girlfriend of mine you know we we were the big U2 fans we had seen several i mean dozens of shows together uh so and and U2 had made an album that i really didn't like i, I really wasn't crazy about it plus i <laughs> was dealing with all this other crap at the time mm-hmm. it was really hard to listen to and i i felt like they had made an album that they had really phoned in and so i and and at the same time i really didn't want to hear any U2 music um, 
And I just remember thinking, well, this music sucks right now. Uh, for me, anyway. And I remember at work, I had put the funeral CD on. And when I heard Tunnels, just the energy of it, the, the crescendo at the end, the, yeah. the rhythm just kept building and building. And it was just this unbelievable celebration of life, but with these very <laughs> dark lyrics, I'd never heard anything like it. And, uh, it just, it made me feel like, okay, things are going to be okay. And the more I, and, and then the next song came on and that was great. And then just kept getting better and better and better. Uh, because they were making music that was unpredictable. It was the song, they would have songs that would start out as these kind of, uh, you know, like maybe slow anthems. And then all of a sudden at the end, it just picks up tempo and just like becomes this exciting, uh, you know, uh, this, this other song. And that's what I really loved about it was just the surprises. It was like, okay, music is still there's there's still music out there that can surprise you and take you to a place that you know you 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 didn't expect to go uh and then you know it ends with this you know lovely you know lullaby from regine chasson uh called uh in the back seat and you know <clears throat> but i i think it's that first song and whenever i hear it live uh it just whenever i hear i've seen arcade fire nine times now um, nine and times. nine times and uh every time they do tunnels uh you know the show just achieves liftoff i think i think that's their their secret weapon that's their uh where the streets have no name you know <laughs> the rest of the gig isn't going so well you just pull that one out and it gets everybody on their feet and going and uh and so that that's that's the one you know just hearing yeah. that at work for the first time and suddenly just like the clouds lifted funeral is track for track great like there's not a bad song <clears> on there and there isn't but yet at, at the same time it it uh it, it's a it, it is a great album and i and i would never criticize it for anything except that when you listen to it now the production on it seems very uh unfinished it, it feels like an unfinished arcade fire album yeah. and you know like i mean because i mean they've gone back and they've you know, they, you know, on their first EP before Funeral, they had a song called No Cars Go. And that's a cool song. And that was a great, you know, another live staple for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have since, and then for their, for their second album, The Unbible, they went and redid that song to make it sound fuller right. and more, uh, you know, and so that it would connect even more when they played it live. It wouldn't just be this obscure EP track. And I think they would probably say that they would want to go back and reproduce Funeral to make it sound even, you know, more, uh, you know, fuller and, and have, you know, more layers to it. Um, but still, I mean, for, you know, what they had at the time and for it being just a small indie album, uh, it's, it's magnificent. It really is. Definitely. And you talk about surprises. I, I'm a big sucker for a good ballad. And when I heard Crown of Love, I'm like, you know, broken yeah. up and torn in pieces throughout of it and then all of a sudden it turns almost like into a disco song at the end and it's just like exactly oh, crap yeah exactly it, just, it throws you for a loop in all the best ways and i i concur wholeheartedly with um your love for the band and seeing them live with you at chicago theater was a great time and 
Um, I I will say that their last. I know you probably have loved every album they've done. I'm not, I haven't been as crazy about their last two albums. Like I think if you piece them both together and take the best songs off of each, I might like them more as full albums. But I think they're a phenomenal band still to this day. Yeah, I got. I mean, uh, Reflector is, is you know my least favorite of their albums, but I think there's there's some great stuff on it. Yeah. Um, I think they could have taken. It didn't have to be a double album. They could have taken the best stuff and put together one solid, amazing album. Um, and I, I think they just they 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 might it might be harder for them to edit themselves these days. I don't know, but um, <laughs> yeah, the, su- the suburbs the suburbs uh, has grown on me in ways that I did not expect over the years. Um, I, I I connect with that album. I think the most of all their albums now. I think it's it's. It speaks to me in ways that not, none of their albums do. Um, okay. I have to go back and, and listen a, to that one again, too. Just, okay. yeah, I mean, just, you know, I mean, it's it's a concept album, but it's a concept that, uh, you know, it's, I think is has multiple layers of, you know, uh, you know, just a lot of personal issues going on with it. And it's my favorite road trip album. <laughs> I think cause I first, <laughs> I think I first heard it when I, when I was on a road trip and, uh, I, the album wasn't officially in stores yet, and I had gotten a, a copy in advance, and I listened to it on a road trip. And every time, uh, you know, I hear it, or every time I hear a song from it, I want to go on a road trip um, and take it with me. Uh, you know, and, and uh, hearing hearing two songs of it in the movie Boyhood, I think it was the, the uh, per- perfectly perfectly used songs. One of them was <laughs> heard during a road trip, and then that another song was heard in the end credits perfectly bookending with the Coldplay song yellow uh richard linklater used the song deep blue at the very end of boyhood and what's in between on the color spectrum green which is all boyhood is it's all green and youth and you know <laughs> growing up and nice. experience and everything like that i think that that that's i don't think the use, use of those two songs i don't think that's an accident um so I mean, it's just been great to see Arcade Fire evolve over the years. I, I do. I really resent any argument of them selling out because now they're doing stadium shows and all that. I mean, they are still staying true to their artistic vision. They want to do stadium shows. They yeah, they want to sure. be a big band. I mean, they, they you know yes, it was great to see them in the clubs and I saw them in the clubs and they were great. But they want to be they want to put on big shows. They want they want the excess and and all the confetti falling from the ceiling and people you know a big room full of you know uh, thousands of people celebrating their music. That's what they're in it for, you know. So uh, and it's been great to see them achieve that uh, all over the years and. Uh, doing film scores on the side, you know. I mean, right, they did they did her and the box, uh, and you know a couple other movies. I think, um, or you know, contributing songs to other movies like The Hunger Games, um, and uh, you know, just you know, even if they fail here and there with a you know with a with with a with a weak song or two on an album, it doesn't matter. They they've still just they've uh, really lived up to the promise that they. Uh, that they had with, with, with funeral. So, yeah. And I, I'm, I'm excited and interested to hear what Will Butler does with his solo album this year. Should be, should be interesting just to hear him on his own. Oh yeah. Yeah. And on a personal note, I think one of my favorite songs by them is a uh, B side called uh, cold wind. 
And oh yeah, I I associate that with um, Six Feet Under, and that's something that like, sure. that's a show that meant a lot to me and helped me um, deal with losing my dad. And you know, there's mm-hmm. just you know, Arcade Fire definitely has like just that emotional connection that will forever stay with me no matter what. Like even if they put out you know another okay album like Reflector, I'm still on board for whatever they do. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing. Is like sometimes, you know, a band like this can get very esoteric with their lyrics and everything, and they do. But, you know, Wynn Butler has definitely has, uh, especially with the suburbs, he, he definitely knows how to, you know, connect with people who, you know, I mean, listen, everybody, you know, in, in rock and roll, you're supposed to, you know, uh, you know, come from, uh, you know, the streets, or you're supposed to come from, uh, you know, a hard living in New York or something like that, or, you know, it, it, it's supposed to give you street cred, but he, you know, when Butler's like, Hey, I grew up in the suburbs, you know, I had yeah. to go to guitar center to get my guitars. I had to, I had to, you know, it's it, it not, there's nothing. I you just, you know, I just like music a lot. And I worked at a shoe store and, you know, this is, and then I want, and then I did music for a living. And, uh, you know, I think that's another reason why, you know, the suburbs is such a, a strong album is because, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, it's it, a, a big chunk of America is suburbia, and uh, it's important to not just try and connect with rock geeks and 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 hipsters who live in the city and and you know in the, in the boroughs of New York. But you know it's it's important to get out there and and talk to the person in Kansas who you know can't get out to the cities and get out and 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 meet music people and 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 try to relate to you know, what the the white stripes are doing or whatever. It's 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 important to, you know, kinda go all over America and and, you know, try and, and uh tell tell some less than magnificent stories about growing up. Yeah, there's there's and, no pretense to, to yeah. the songwriting and that's what I love about them. Yeah, exactly. Well thanks Colin for being on the show. It was great to hear your choice. Sure. And uh We'll probably have you on the show again, I'm sure, in the near future. So Sounds good. Excited to hear you on WGN as always. Thanks, All man. All right. Thank we'll you. All righty. See ya. Bye-bye. Colin Suter there with Arcade Fire Neighborhood Number One Tunnels. Um, great choice, Colin. I think I said that already when I talked to him. Um, we had some fantastic contributions to this very special bonus episode, the song that changed your life. And I'm saying that towards the end of the year 2015. I'd like to do this again with different folks. So, um, yeah, at the beginning of the year and at the end of the, the year, maybe this will become a um, tradition, a uh, bonus episode tradition by yours truly, since I love hearing stories about music. I love music oh, just a hair above movies, just a slight little tiny 
colic. I don't know if that would qualify as a little hair. But anyway, I will definitely do this one more time. Not one more time. It might become an, an event of sorts. Yeah, an event that I have to post up posters for and promote everywhere and take out uh, billboards. You know, the usual thing we do here on Director's Club. So, yeah, um, I want to close things up. This went very well. Um, I really had some great conversations, heard some great songs. But um, I want to tell you for a fact that I almost, um, you know, completely lost my mind in Michigan. And it had nothing to do with um, necessarily the environment or my roommate. It's more my health, my... You know, my body was deteriorating. I was going through depression. I was having panic attacks. I was drinking to um, self-medicate. And there was just so many dark periods of time that it was unfortunate that my roommate had to be subjected to. Um, But, I mean, a lot of it was physical. It wasn't all like me having a mental breakdown of sorts. I think the physical contributed to it. And I was listening to a lot of music to um, help cope as well. You know, um, I renewed my Spotify account. I was making uh, mixes for myself to get through hard times. Um, And it was around the Richard Linkletter episode where, um, of course, we watched the Before Trilogy. And that Richard Linkletter episode in particular is one of my all-time favorites. Um, I believe it was the first to feature... um, Patrick's wonderful partner, Regina, and I remember uh, my roommate being present in the room while I was trying out this wireless microphone, lying on my bed, um, you know, half in the bag, but it was really, you know, I of course I had watched before um, Sunrise, rewatched it, and heard a song in that movie that made me go... Uh, track down this artist by the name of Kath Bloom. She's a folk singer-songwriter of sorts, and she pretty much just makes music on her acoustic guitar that's incredibly raw. And um, I heard a song by one of my favorite songwriters today, working today, and his name is Bill Callahan. It's called The Breeze. I was like, this song is one of the most gorgeous things I've ever heard in my entire life. And I came across it on Spotify. It was under Bill's name. So I had assumed that he wrote it. Um, But it turns out, guess what? Kath Bloom wrote this song called The Breeze Slash My Baby Cries. Um, You know, and she talks about her puppy. She talks about her father. She wrote this song... Um, you know, after a difficult time in her life about how even just feeling the wind on her face was killing her. And literally, this is how I felt when I had shingles. Like, I could, when I stepped outside, I felt the wind caressing my face and me wanting to scream. The, the pain was so horrendous. Um, and it wasn't really until I heard this song that I made the decision to write music again to help get me through this horrible pain. It was also an impetus to call my mom, be honest, and express to her that I'm depressed and I think I want to move back to Chicago. And, you know, that took a lot of courage to do. It wasn't an easy decision to make. 
but it's turned out to be the right one. So Kath Bloom changed my life very, very recently. Um, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be writing songs again. And I will say that it's an interesting correlation between one of my favorite podcast episodes I recorded with Patrick and Regina with the Richard Linkletter episode and, you know, hearing her song. It's a different song, by the way, um, Kath Bloom has in a very memorable scene in Before Sunrise that obviously you'll know and love when they're both uh, putting on a vinyl record and listening to it together in complete silence. That's Kath Bloom. And all her songs are just sublime in every way. I She is one of my favorite songwriters of all time now, along with Bill Callahan's cover of The Breeze. I am playing the original by Kath Bloom. Um, and you absolutely have to seek out her music. She's like in her 70s, and I think she's putting out a new record this year. So, um, And her EP that she put out last year was my number one record of 2014, simply due to my bias due to my love of her and her voice and her songs and everything that she does, and the fact that one of her songs changed my life within the past couple of months. Um, I would say this occurred in October, so geez, you know, my life changed for the better. Thank you, Kath Bloom. Thank you, podcast listeners, for all your support. And um, I plan to... uh, return full-time now to Director's Club, and I have you to thank for that, I have Patrick to thank for that, and uh, Kath Bloom for saving my life, essentially, during a time when I wasn't sure if I was going to make it. And I did, and I'm here. And thank you so much for listening to this bonus episode. I'm going to leave it with uh, Kath Bloom to take you, th- take you out, and uh, you can check us out at directorsclubpodcast.com, directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Our best of the year episode is forthcoming within the week, um, and then we're doing uh, Singing in a Rain Director. So we got a lot to look forward to, folks, and uh, this is going to be a great year for movies and especially music. I just have this feeling with a lot of my favorite bands releasing records. I just ha- I'm just i more optimistic this time around for obvious reasons, and Kath Bloom is one of them. Thanks, everybody. I love you, Patrick. I love you, listeners, and goodbye. I'd like to touch you But I've forgotten how Said I didn't need you But look at me now Sometime in the summer Something in me is stubborn 